Please be seated. Before we open God's word, let's pray. God, we long to know you, to enjoy you, to glorify you, to please you. We desperately need you to open our eyes, to see you in your word. You have spoken. You have spoken for us to hear. But melt away our pride and our resistance and our callousness and truly give us ears to hear. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Take out your Bibles, if you would. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4. We, as a congregation, have been working through Hebrews for a few months now on Sunday mornings. Uh, And I encourage you to read along. If you're going to use the Bible that's there in your rows, it's on page 1003. We looked at the first couple of these verses that we're getting ready to read last week, and we're going to review those verses, 12 and 13, but we're going to focus on verses 14 to 16. So this is Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The grass withers, the flower fades, but God's word will endure forever. Many of you were here last week during the Sunday school hour. I I taught during Sunday school on what's known as the health, wealth, and happiness gospel, or sometimes the prosperity gospel. And as we saw last week, even though it's become the face of American Christianity in so many ways, and we're exporting it to the world through, through uh, television, through the internet, it really is no gospel at all, because it tells us the main thing Jesus died to do is give us health and wealth and material prosperity. You know, it's a nice thought, but it actually falls short of what Jesus came to offer. He came to offer something that's far greater than material prosperity. And in particular, last week, I shared a quote by a fairly well-known prosperity preacher named Miles Monroe, and I want to share that quote again. Here's what he said. People ain't worried about no blood on no cross. They're worried about how they're going to make it through the day. Now, clearly, that that quote is wrong, but I have a question for you. On a daily basis, does the blood of Jesus Christ matter to you? Does it have an influence in your daily life? Has it so affected you that you can say that, that the blood of Christ is far more important to you than all the health and wealth and prosperity that this world can offer. 
What do you say to that? I don't know each of your hearts, but I do know the author who wrote Hebrews 2,000 years ago. I've gotten to know his heart because I've studied this letter for hundreds and hundreds of hours. I know what he would say to the question, does the blood of Christ really matter to us? He would say, oh yes, a million times yes. The blood of Christ is the most important thing, not just in the world, but in heaven. And he, said, he would say to us, if you want to make it through the day, you don't need health and wealth and material prosperity. You need more than anything the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what he would say to us. And it helps if we remember the context of this letter. Hebrews is written to these believers who were Jews. And they've, they've left behind the temple and they've left all the trappings, those shadows that Judaism is full of. And, and they've entered into the completed work of Jesus, that Jesus is the fulfillment of all those things. But now, the news wearing off a little bit. And they start to think about the temple and how great that place was, how grand it was, especially when they're meeting in living rooms and in cemeteries. And they miss the feasts and they miss the sacrifices, and they miss the priests. And this pastor is looking at his flock, and some of them are leaving. They're turning away from Christ. They're going back to the Old Testament. And he's saying to them, I know you miss those things, but those things are not what you need they just point to what you need. They point to Jesus. Jesus Christ is what you need, and if you have Jesus, you have everything you need. That's what he's telling them, and so that's why throughout Hebrews, he's going to say things like this. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Don't fix your eyes on what you've left behind. Don't fix your eyes on, on the persecution that may be coming. Fix your eyes on Jesus, because if you have Jesus, you have everything you need. As we look at those passages uh, this passage, I want you to see four things as we work our way through the text. The first is con the confession. Second, we're going to see compassion. Third, we're going to see communion. And fourth, we're going to see confidence. So first, confession. Look with me at verse 14. He says, since then we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Now, we've seen that language of hold fast twice already back in chapter 3. We hold fast to something when something else is trying to pull it away from us. That, that word, it's an interesting word. It's a Greek word, krateo, and it has an interesting development in the New Testament. It was used in the Gospels to talk about the religious leaders trying to catch or to arrest Jesus. And then it was used in Acts to talk about the religious leaders trying to arrest the apostles. But it's used in the epistles, it's used in the New Testament letters to tell us to arrest, to hold on to our confession, our faith, what we believe about Jesus Christ. Now, what is our confession that it's talking about? Well, for the last two chapters, it's been talking about our confession that Jesus is our great high priest. And that's a concept that's a little bit lost on most of us because we didn't grow up in the temple. We didn't see the great high priest going once a year on the Day of Atonement to make sacrifices 
But that was the, the most important role in the Jewish world. Uh, the high priest who would sacrifice, who would represent the people. It was a position originally f- filled by Aaron, the brother of Moses. And then Aaron died and others throughout the years became the high priest and then they would die. But think about what they did. Their primary job was to represent the people before God by offering sacrifices on their behalf. And so one day per year, if you've ever heard of the Jewish holiday Yom Kippur, that's that day of atonement that we read about in Leviticus 16 a few minutes ago, he would go in to the temple and he would make a sacrifice but he would first have to make a sacrifice for, them, for himself. That's why you saw two levels of sacrifices. First for his own sin, because the high priest was a sinner. And then a sacrifice for the collective people. And what he would do is he would go through the temple. He would walk through the holy place where the priests did their ministry. And he would reach this heavy curtain, inches thick, thousands of pounds heavy. And it, was a, it separated the rest of the temple from what was called the most holy place, a place that was off limits 364 days a year. But this one day a year, he could go into the most holy place where God dwelt among the people, and he would make a sacrifice on their behalf. And he could only stay for a few brief moments, but in those few moments, what he would do is he would take the blood of the sacrifice and he would sprinkle it onto the mercy seat. And then he would have to leave the Holy of Holies. He would have to leave behind the presence of God and then wait another year till he could enter in once again. And this pastor is saying to his flock, don't you want a better high priest than that? He could only go in once a year, and that for a few minutes at a time. Don't you want a better high priest? See, that's what Jesus did. Jesus sprinkled his own blood onto the heavenly mercy seat. That that earthly mercy seat, it was just a temple, but Jesus, it says, passed through the heavens into the eternal, the heavenly holy of holies with the real mercy seat. And he sprinkled his own blood there for us. And that blood, unlike the blood of bulls and goats, that blood could actually take away sin. And so he's saying, why would you go back to that Old Testament priest who couldn't really take away sin? Because that's what Jesus did. Nothing could take away sin other than the blood of Jesus. And so he passed through the heavens. He pulled back that curtain into the presence of God, and he sacrificed his own blood for our sakes. That's our confession of faith, that our great high priest, Jesus, has passed into heaven, and he spilled his own blood for our sins. Now, here's my guess. I'm guessing that nobody in this room, when you came to Saving Faith, said, Jesus, I need you to be my great high priest. I am just doubting that's the language that anybody in this room used. And yet, that is exactly what we mean when we say nothing but the blood of Jesus. That when Jesus' blood was poured out on the mercy seat, it was the only thing in the world that could wipe away our sin. Bulls and goats could not do this. What Paul's saying here about, I mean, what Hebrews is saying here about our confession is the same thing Paul said in Romans 10, 9. 
He says there, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is reminding us that the Christian faith is not a secret, unconfessed faith. It's a faith that's both believed in the heart and confessed with the lips. And this book is saying, this pastor is saying to his flock, hold on tight to that confession. Don't let it slip away from you because you long to return to the things of this world and you long to return to those outward trappings of Judaism. It's a stern warning because he's speaking to a people who are in danger of drifting away from their confession. Now, as we've said over and over again, in Hebrews, this author is doing two things. He's warning, but he's also wooing them. He woos them to the beauty of Christ. After he warns them not to turn from their confession, he says, why would you even want to turn from Jesus? And he goes on to talk about the compassion of Christ. That's the second thing we see here is compassion. Look at verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. In other words, why shouldn't I go back to Old Testament Judaism? Or for you, why shouldn't I go back to the world? He says, because of Christ's amazing love for you. That's why you shouldn't go back. You know, this letter was written in a time where the priesthood in the temple was really corrupt. And the high priest was the person really with the most power among all of the Israeli, uh, Israelite religious institution. And as you know, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And it was a corrupt position. It was a money-hungry position. It, it was for the elites. The, the high priest did not know the average person's name and had no sympathy them. He thought he was better than them by this time. And the author of Hebrews is saying, for we, we don't have a high priest like that. We have one who sympathizes with us in our weakness. Now, when we think of sympathy, don't think of it like if you were sitting in your living room and you look out the window and you see a child from the neighborhood riding his bike and he falls off his bike and he skins his knee. You know, your, your heart might go out to him a little bit. You might feel some sympathy there. But it's a far greater sense of sympathy. The sympathy that we're talking about here is the kind of sympathy you would feel if you saw your own child in tremendous pain or your own child destroying their lives. And your heart just bursts at the thought of it. That's what kind of sympathy Jesus has for his people. That's a glimpse of Christ's heart here, that he's not some distant, aloof high priest who, who doesn't care about us. And he's not just sitting there with a checklist making sure we've done all our religious duties. He truly loves his people so much that he spilled his own blood for us. The Puritan Thomas Goodwin says in this verse, the author of Hebrews, as it were, takes our hand and lays it upon Christ's breast and lets us feel how his heart beats and his affections yearn toward us, even now as he is in glory. And so he's saying, 
dear flock, you can go up to Jerusalem, you can go to the temple, you can see the high priest parading around in his magisterial garments. But if you look into heaven, you can see Christ's heart for you. And his heart yearns with deep love for all who confess him. Well, yeah. There's probably people about whom he feels that way. What about me? I've made a train wreck of my life. I've sinned against him. I've been a, a poor follower. I've betrayed him. Could he really love me that way? After all, verse 13 tells us no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. What has Christ seen you do? He's seen everything. He's seen everything you've ever done. He's seen every thought you've ever had. And it all testifies against us. But look what it says. This text tells us that in heaven there is a mercy seat sprinkled with the precious blood of Jesus Christ and that his blood pleads for us. Though our sins may accuse us, they cannot yell more loudly than the blood of Christ pleads for us. When Christ bore our sins in his body upon the cross and his blood was poured out, it washed away our sins. We're going to sing this shortly, but forgive him, oh forgive, they cry, nor let that ransom sinner die. That's, that's what the blood on the mercy seat does. Isn't it reassuring, Christian? Isn't it reassuring that Christ knows everything about you, even the things you don't want to know about yourself, and loves you anyway? Now, if you've read the Gospels carefully, you know that Jesus generally had two ways of speaking to people. One was incredibly tender and compassionate, like we've just talked about, to those who have made a train wreck of their lives and know it. But there were some, there were many, with whom Jesus spoke that didn't believe they needed such mercy. They believed they were righteous. In a sense, they believed they could be their own high priest, that they could work their way to God. They didn't need Jesus. And when we see Jesus in the Gospels deal with such self-righteous folks, folks who push him away because they don't think that they need his mercy, what we see is Christ push them away. Christ distance himself from them. Why? He tells us in the scriptures, he didn't come for the righteous, but for sinners. And so let me ask you, how do you come into the presence of God? Did you come into this room because trusting in what you've done, you've been a pretty good person this week? You're not like that guy over there. The Christian comes into the presence of God, and our hope for today and for eternity is in the compassion of Christ. That's what we cling to. We see it in the scriptures. Christ is a lion to the self-righteous and a lamb to the repentant. So this text shows us 
about Christ's compassion towards sinners. Third, this text shows us about communion. Look at verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. A few weeks ago, we were given, my family and I were given tickets to Savannah Bananas baseball game. And if you've never been, those are a blast. They are so much fun, but they've been sold out for years. And so it's a little bit hard to come buy tickets. And somebody gave us some. And these weren't just any tickets. These were VIP tickets. They were great. We, we had free buffet and all we could drink beverages and comfortable seats. And I remember looking out on the crowd thinking, peasants? You don't know what you're missing. You know, the priest here is much more humble, but in verse 16, what he's doing is he's looking in his mind's eye at the temple. All those people going through the empty motions of religion, but never enjoying the presence of God. In fact, the closest they came to the presence of God was that one time per year when the high priest would go in on their behalf. But otherwise, it was all empty ritual. And he looks out at that crowd and he says, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence. We don't have to do that. We're not limited the way they are. Do you realize this, beloved? As believers, entering into the presence of God is not a -a once-a-year thing for spiritual elitists. It's an everyday thing for spiritual uh, peasants. We can approach the throne. How? Because of our great high priest. That is the only way you and I can come into the presence of God. To be our high priest, Jesus had to be fully human. And so what that means is that at the throne in heaven, there is a man who is like us in every way except for one. He's like us in every way except for sin. And by his going in there, he's burst the gates of heaven open so that us who are like him can follow him. In fact, he didn't just open the way. He tells us he is the way. Look with me at John 14. You hear this often in funerals. We do not hear this enough in life. But John chapter 14, Jesus is talking about his departure, about his ascension coming soon. And he says in verse 2, John 14, verse 2, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. Well, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. How do we come to God? I was at Waffle House, that fine hibachi restaurant in town, a few weeks ago. And someone who didn't work there tried to go behind the counter. And the worker said, stop, you can't be back here. If we can't march behind the counter at Waffle House, why do we think we could march into the presence of a holy God on our own? We need a representative. We need the Lord Jesus who has gone there for us, and he says to us, I am the way. 
And so through our confession of Christ, we are made one with Him. Where He can go, we can go too. Christ welcomes us into this amazing communion that He has with His Father. Listen to Jonathan Edwards on this. He says, Christ allows such little poor creatures as you and me to come to Him, to love communion with Him, and to maintain a communication of love with Him. You may go to God and tell Him how you love Him and open your heart toward Him and He'll accept of it. He has come down from heaven and has taken upon Him the human nature in purpose that He might be near to you and might be, as it were, your companion, your friend. So this passage in telling us to draw near is teaching us about communion with Christ. And then there's a fourth thing that that leads us to, and that is great confidence. Look at that. It says, let us draw near with confidence. And I think in the background was the Jewish Day of Atonement once again. You see, the the high priest had a tremendous privilege He could go into the presence of God, and yet it was a terrifying privilege. Historical accounts tell us that when he went into the Holy of Holies, he would wear a rope around his waist just in case he was struck down in the presence of God because of his sins. They wouldn't be able to send anybody in after him. They would have to wait a whole year for the next high priest to go get him. And so they tied a rope to his waist so that if he died in God's presence, they could pull him out. It's a place where you went with fear and trembling. But he says to us here, you who are in Christ can approach the throne with confidence. It's not an arrogant confidence, but it's the confidence that says, I belong here because I belong to Jesus. It doesn't mean we don't tremble at God's presence. We should. This is an awesome God. But it's a joyful trembling that a God like that would love a peasant like me. We draw near, and where we ought to find scorn and anger, what we are told here is we find grace and mercy. Praise the Lord. Richard Sibbs says, We may with a a heart sprinkled with the blood of Christ now ascend into heaven, answer all objections, and triumph against all enemies. We may go boldly to God, both to plead with Him for help and to fellowship with Him. He says, go, do that confidently. God, the God of the universe, welcomes you because you belong to Jesus. Have you ever really been in the presence of God? And I don't mean some emotional experience. We can fabricate those. They're a dime a dozen. But really fellowshipping with God through His Word by His Spirit. You know that when you have that experience, it transforms you so that you don't want to go back to normal. It's it's like when Peter was on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus and Moses and Elijah And it was so great, he looks at Jesus, he says, can we build some tents here and just camp out for a while? That's why Christians love the Word of God so much. 
Because the more we spend time in the Word of God, in fellowship with God, the more it fills our hearts with great joy. That's what fellowship with God is like. It causes the rest of the world to to melt away. And, And so he says here, you should be confident. If you belong to Christ, then you belong in the presence of God. But you know as well as I do, there's something that disrupts that. It's our own frailty, our own weakness, our own sin. Our distracted minds and our short attention spans, and one moment we're praying and the next minute we're scrolling Facebook or we're drooling on our pillow. It's the guilt of our past sin, the weight of our present sin, and the lust of our future sin. Those things often drag us away from that rich communion that we can have with God. And there's a second aspect here of confidence that I want you to understand. It's not just confidence to approach the throne of grace, but it's also confidence to fight against sin. The text tells us Jesus has been tempted like us, but he's never fallen into sin. That means he doesn't need a rescuer, and so he is able to rescue us when we are tempted. You see, Jesus loves us despite our sin, but he loves us so much he doesn't leave us in our sin. He sympathizes with us. His heart draws near in pity. And he takes sides with you against your sin. And he gives you power to fight against your sin. I know how wearying it is to fight sin. It's like pulling weeds. You can spend all Saturday afternoon pulling weeds and you come out the next day and a new one sprouts up, doesn't it? And it's going to be like that till Jesus returns. And sometimes we just want to give up and our walks with Christ can be that way. We fight sin and we think we're making progress and then we look up and a new one has sprouted out. And it can be so discouraging and sometimes we just want to throw up our hands and at the first sign of temptation we just give in. Look at verse 16. He is able to give help in the time of need. When tempted with sin, that thing that creates distance in your relationship with God, creates distance in your prayer life. We can look to Christ for confidence because he gives grace to stand firm and grace to fight so that we can make progress in the Christian life. You and I should be confident in our fight for sin because Christ is in us and he enables us to grow. This means we never have to sin. The battle against sin is never a lost cause when Christ is in us. He's always able to give grace and mercy in our time of need. You know, sometimes people teach that because we are forgiven our sins, we can go ahead and sin all we want. This text reminds us that that is not Christ's desire for us, that our sins truly do offend God. They grieve Christ because he loves us so much. And if he loves us so much and his heart beats so strongly for us, how could we willingly 
gladly, carelessly sin against him. So this text gives us confidence, not just to draw near, but to fight those sins which would otherwise seek to keep us away. Do you see, beloved, why I say that having Jesus Christ as our high priest is the greatest blessing we can have in this life? It's greater than wealth and comfort and health and long life. In fact, if your chief desires, if the things you are living for in this life are health and wealth and prosperity and long life, it's not that you desire too much, but that you desire too little. Because Jesus has come to offer you something far greater. He's come to bring you into communion with God. If you and I had seen Jesus on earth, in the flesh, we'd have been able to see his compassion and his affection towards sinners. Well, even though we cannot see it, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His heart for you has not changed. And he stands this very moment and he beckons us to draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. His love has not waned. His patience with you has not worn thin. His compassion hasn't been exhausted. And while your sins may yell, condemn His blood pleads all the more loudly, forgive him, oh forgive, they cry. How do we apply this text? Simple application. Do not take the grace of Jesus Christ, the blood of Jesus Christ, for granted. You know, the the day of, of atonement was the highlight of the Jewish year. Because it gave hope that sins could be forgiven. Beloved, you and I, if we are believers, if we belong to Jesus, every day is the day of atonement. We are living every day in that day that people 2,000 years ago longed for. That is what we have in Jesus Christ. And I wonder, do we grow complacent about it? I wonder if sometimes we don't sing nothing but the blood of Jesus, but have an air of indifference. Or we sing Amazing Grace, but our hearts are really not that impressed at all. Fight against that complacency with all that you have. The presence of God that you and I can enjoy in this moment. And as we study God's word and as we go about our daily lives, it is only through the blood of Christ that we have that. Without the blood of Christ, you and I right now would already be under the condemnation of our sins. But through his shed blood, we are invited into the presence of God, not kept at a distance, but we are called sons and daughters, and we are commanded to draw near. Let's make it our chief objective to never cease to be amazed with the grace of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord God, we, we long to be amazed. That's what our hearts need. And sometimes we express that by longing for things of this world. But we were created for so much more. And only the blood of Jesus can offer it because only the blood of Jesus can bring us into your presence. Only the blood of Jesus can wash away our sins. Oh, Lord, we pray that we would be a people 
who never cease to be amazed, never cease to be impressed with what Jesus, our great high priest, has done for us.